Hello, and welcome to this episode of the World of Work podcast. We've got something a little bit different today. We've been recording a series of episodes with good friend of the show, Stephen Mather. He was on our show in the spring of 2021, and we had a great conversation about high control groups, which is a little bit of a specialist topic for him. He's a organizational psychologist and has experience living in high control groups. We really enjoyed that conversation and thought we wanted to explore it a little bit more. And we wanted to explore the crossover between high control groups and the organizations that we work in. So we've spent some time with Stephen and we've recorded four different episodes looking at cultic behaviors in organizations. You can learn more about Stephen uh, through his podcast, Cult Hackers, and on the internet. Um, in the meantime, though, here is episode one of our series on cultic behaviors in organizations. Welcome to the podcast. This is a special collaboration between the Cult Hackers podcast with me, Stephen Mather, and we've got... Yeah, you've got James here uh, from the World of Work Project and... We've got Jane from the World of Work Project as well. Fantastic. So um, this is uh, this is the first of, of our, our collaboration and we we thought we, we wanted to talk about um, uh, what we think is a really interesting subject, which is... I guess, um, broadly speaking, cults at work or cultic practices at work. So organizations that seem to be quite culty or cultic. Uh, and we wanted to sort of pool our experience and our thinking on this. So we, we're from various different kind of areas, I suppose. So it might be useful to introduce ourselves to our various audiences. Um, but we thought that it might be really interesting to dig into this subject and understand a bit about it and then think about whether there's things we need to do about it. Yeah, absolutely. So just to quickly introduce myself, um, as Stephen said, my name's James. I'm, I'm James Carrier. I have spent the last, I guess, 10 years of my life looking at our experiences in the workplace and, and how we can shape and improve those for ourselves as individuals or how we can, as leaders or managers, change the way that we work so that we create better experiences for those around us. Um, in terms of my career experience that, that might be relevant for this type of conversation, I've worked in all kinds of different places. So I, I did various jobs before I went to university. So I worked in things like supermarkets and restaurants and video shops. Um, I then went through university and, and I guess started my career after that. And the first place I went into was a large consulting accounting firm. So one of the big four firms, I, I think there's some real relevance there in terms of that experience. Um, I've done a few other things, but then I spent about 10 years at a large bank as well. So that gives a bit of context as to what I'm bringing in terms of my you know, working experience and the places that I've been in. Brilliant. What about, about you, Jane? Would you like to introduce yourself? Thanks. Yeah. So I'm Jane Stewart, uh, and I have spent most of my career working in the nonprofit sports sector in the UK. Uh, and most recently, I have been focusing, like James, on people's experience of work and volunteering as well. And I guess there's a couple of things that I am particularly feel are relevant and kind of make me think about this stuff a little bit more. One is I think that when organizations are thinking about uh, exceptionalism, I hear that a lot in my sector. So sport quite often tries to pretend it's very, very different from other sectors. Mm. So I quite often... Um, like I like to bring things from other other sectors and go, hey, look at this. This is what they're doing over over in healthcare or over in community work. And they go, oh, no, 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 we're different. And I'm really interested in that and how that relates to some of the things we, we might talk about. And also, um, we're very, 
as organizations, uh, people, people like to stick, once they've decided it's quite difficult to get them to move from the sport or activity they like. And that makes, you end up with quite a lot of homogeneity within organizations and groups. And I, again, think that's quite interesting because certain types of activity appeal to certain types of people. And then you see that through their leadership and their management and all of that. And again, that kind of is one of the things I, having read and looked around this topic, get interested in. So that's, mm. that's uh, why it, it tickles my intellectual fancy. <laughs> Let's go with that. Great. Um, okay, so my turn. I'm Stephen Mather. I'm the co-host of a podcast called Cult Hackers um, that I do with my daughter, Celine. Um, I've had an interest in cults and high control groups for many years. I was actually raised in an organization that I consider to be a cult. And our podcast is really about trying to crack that cult code to understand what's happening um, and also how people leave these groups. Uh, leaving means you've got to sort of make sense out of your world. You've got to think again about a whole bunch of subjects that you were told what to believe, how to believe it and so on. Um, so it's quite, it's quite difficult actually to make sense of the world after all that. Um, but I'm also interested in business. I'm, I'm actually a business improvement trainer, coach, management trainer. And that's what I do for my day job. And I've been doing that really for the last sort of 20 years since I've left my group. Um, after a few, after a lot of other things. Um, and obviously I met you, Jane, at the, uh, we did a master's in organizational psychology. We're in the same group. And it was during that master's that I started to realize that I needed to, um, I mean, I've described it as address the elephant in my own room, which I'm not sure is a very good analogy, but it's, it's a clunky way of saying that I needed to look at a part of my life that I kind of left behind. So when I left the cult, I just tried to get on with my secular job. I had a family, I had a daughter and obviously um, I had my wife and I was concentrating on all that really important stuff and didn't really address how I'd felt about this cult life. Um, I tried to be as good a person as I could. Um, when I got to do the masters, I started to feel, I don't know, I got angry about certain things that were being said on the program around the way that organizations worked and so on and that sort of made me realize that I didn't really understand why I was feeling that way um, and it made me realize that I had unfinished business really I hadn't really addressed all of the feelings I'd had about the group um, and I realized that I needed to sort of look at this part of my life again um, and I obviously hadn't really left it all behind me there was still stuff there I needed to understand and make sense of the masters helped me to look at it through an organizational lens, which I think is quite interesting. And that perspective is something I want to continue to do. So it's the sort of framing that not that many researchers use, I think. So yeah, that's a, a bit of a long winded answer, but that's, uh, that's who I am. Well, and you know, you might may or may not know, but I, uh, those of us, those of our listeners who have heard World of Work before will know, I'm a big believer in what makes you angry 
is an interesting topic. I think if there's anything out there that you're angry about, A, you should work in it because you're probably going to try and solve it harder than anyone else. And uh, B, it makes for much more entertaining listening. So I am really looking forward now to hearing a little bit more about that because I also got very angry about organizational practices after my master's. And I don't know, for those of you that are listening, I don't know if that's a deliberate return to education thing that happens to people over a certain age when they go back to education. But certainly that org psych group, I feel like like there are lots of things we got very angry about in work. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. Uh, No, I think think they were... Uh, trying to provoke us, weren't they? I think that was part part of the idea behind the the course. No, I mean I'm very happy that um, and you know, that they did that. Um, so it, it sounds like we've you know we've got quite an interesting little panel that we're gonna we're gonna talk about this subject. Um, why why do we care? I suppose is um, is the question that I often ask. You know why why are we interested in this subject? We've perhaps touched on it a bit, but what, why do we think that we should be doing a podcast on cultic practices in the workplace yeah i mean i i've got some thoughts on it and and obviously i don't have a lived experience but but you have of this but my sense is that my hypothesis i should say is that there are a fair number of organizations out there that are adopting cultic practices in one way or another or behaviors or or behaving in some ways that are sort of reflective of at least my interpretation of what a cult is. And I'd like to dive into that and explore what a cult actually is in a bit more detail. But but I think that is happening. And I guess for me, I, I think that there is a risk around that, risks of negativity in, in multiple different ways. I think that there's a risk that the people who enter into working agreements with these organizations have their experiences of work changed. Maybe their more broader experiences within the world changed as a result of this. And I, and I think there's you know a lack of transparency in that. I think there's a lack of honesty. And I think that there could be detrimental impact to those individuals and detrimental impacts through them, through crossover and spillover effects more broadly in the world as a result of them working in those organizations. Um, I'm not hundred percent sure that that's the case. I, I don't know that this leads to necessarily worse outcomes for people, but but I guess it feels like it probably does. It feels like there's probably going to be wrapped up within this somewhere an element of exploitation is, is fundamentally what I, what for me this gets down to at its core. And why why am I interested in that? I guess fundamentally, I think exploitation, if that's what's involved in, in, in these organizations, is an unfairness. It's an injustice. And, and I kind of have an inclination to find and, and, and try and surface where I see injustices. Um, and I guess that comes back to some of my personal drivers around, you know, fairness and justice and things. So, so I guess for me, that's really the core of it. And as I said, like, I'm, I'm learning through all this. I don't know, but I think that there is going to be exploitation in here. Um, and and sort of a, a you know a, a slight tangential thing. I also think, with another hat on, I'm very interested in sort of responsibility through business and what are the roles of businesses and and what license do we give the organisations that that we create and give birth to through our legal systems? What license do we give to them to shape and influence our world? And I think we give them a lot, and I think we should understand the ecosystems and, and the environments and the incentive structures that we create for them and the powers that we grant them and what they do with those powers. And I think there's, there's a chance that when they become cultic, they may use their power as organizations within these structures that we that we set up in ways that are perhaps detrimental to society as a whole. So that's um, 
those are, I guess, my interests in this, really. Jane, what about you? What, what sort of draws you to this subject, really? Okay, well, if nothing else, I've remembered why I like to go first, because now I've got about 10 more things that I'm thinking about after listening to you. So smart move, James. Um, so I made some notes as you were talking, and before you even said the word exploitative, I had that word written down as well, because I think, like you, I feel like that's something in there. Um, and I'll, I'll say why I think that. It's because I think we're in a, okay, go back to Victorian times and a lot of work was measured by piecework or by the amount that you outputted, right? And then somewhere along the way, because we started learning about inputs versus outputs and we started regulating work through man, uh, manufacturing and stuff, we started counting inputs, right? So the number of hours that you used the machine, the number of hours you wrote up the books, whatever it was. And I think we're in this really weird, weird place in the world, particularly in knowledge work, where we're trying to regulate both the inputs and the outputs. So no, you must work this number of hours, but also you will be held accountable for your KPIs and you'll lose your job if you don't do them. And I think that's, I think that's a dodgy deal, right? And the reason I think um, that this topic is particularly relevant and interesting to that is that I think when organizations are successful at convincing people to put in more effort than they have to, I think we live in a society, certainly in the UK and, and similarly in the US, where there is some level of regulation about what you can and can't do. You can't whip us, you can't bully us, you can't fire us for um, being productive, but not being the most extreme productive. So you have to convince people to work till 10 at night. And you have to do it, ideally, without uh, letting them know that they are going above and beyond and make them feel good about it. Because if you make them feel good about it, they're not going to whinge about it. They're not going to sue you. They're not going to uh, demand better pay. They're just going to be smiling. And I think for me, that's the exploitation that I, I, I can feel is around. There's something slightly nerve wracking for me about my behavior in my twenties as a manager, where I convinced myself and my team that it was a brilliant idea to be working all hours that God sends. And we were on some kind of higher mission to do something special. Now, I loved that team and I loved that work, but I am conscious now that it probably almost definitely wasn't as balanced and wasn't as boundaried as it would should have been. And that, that was partially driven by the fact that I didn't want those boundaries at that point. So therefore it kind of inflicted that on my teams. So why are we talking about it? Well, because 27 year old me would have liked someone to say, Hey, you, you might want to look out for these signs these aren't, you know, this this wonderful world where all 10 of you are wrapped up in this dream scenario and you love this work and you're working beyond all of your normal boundaries. That might not be the good sign you think it is. So firstly, I, I think that's really important. Um, secondly, I think James's, James's point is really spot on about the power of organizations in our modern society and the place they occupy and what they're meant to do for society. And I worry that our regulation systems and I don't mean laws I mean like the systems that regulate our norms behaviors and stuff are so open for organizations to do what they like that there is a lack of acknowledgement in our society of what power that has over people's lives and purpose and and all of that and I think um so that's a roundabout set way of saying I think I want individuals I think I'm interested because I want individuals to be able to spot these organizations and avoid them I want managers to spot when they're doing it themselves and it's, it's not done deliberately or, or with a bad intention, but it's, it's done from good reason and, and gets out of hand. And I also want organizations to 
in some senses be regulated if only by people choosing not to work for them such that they recognize these practices where these practices are not helpful for the individual and I acknowledge that we might talk about this and that might not be the case I might go actually there's some situations this is really great it's really helping people uh so yeah that's my that's my word salad no that's 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 really interesting I, I think they're both um interesting perspectives I suppose um for me um I'm interested because um, I'm interested in in cults, but organisations, or sorry, um, cults are a type of organisation. Therefore, a lot of the same things that everybody would recognise in a in a normal organisation, um, cults do. So they recruit people, they discipline people, they get rid of people, um, they. Um, have rules about behavior and um, they have performance requirements. So actually uh, there's a lot of crossover between these two groups. So actually the only, the, the thing then we, we are, end up talking about is I suppose the way that's done. And so it's actually very easy um, in my view for organizations to start to do some of the things in the same way that, that cults would do them. Um, and so I think there's a real danger there. And maybe we've also all seen, I think we've talked before about how we've we've seen activities in organizations where we've raised an eyebrow and thought, hmm, you know, is that is that really ethical? And um, maybe we didn't think about it as a cult, but maybe actually there, there are some cultic elements to it. So I just think it's a high risk area. Um, I think the other the other reason why I'm interested is um during uh, my early stage as a consultant i worked a lot in the kind of behavioral change space if you like so health and safety was the first area that i worked in so how do you change people's behavior around health and safety and a lot of that is about changing the way people think about all sorts of things um as well as changing what they do so behavioral health and safety is, is a misnomer in many ways because it's not just about behavior. It's about getting into their thinking so that they recognize activities, you know, in different ways. Um, they intervene on people when they see people doing something that they shouldn't. This is not a natural thing that people would do. So you're trying to encourage people to essentially behave in a way that isn't really normal or natural for them so you start to dig into I think areas of motivation influence um, and actually you know saying to people we, we want to change the culture we actually want to um, thoughtfully on purpose change the culture and change people's thinking well you know that is almost a definition of a of a cultic activity so um and i think it's, it's for the right reasons if you're talking health and safety but um it risks you're getting into an area that, that has sort of lots of minefields in it so i think it's really interesting that there's a lot of commonality there's there's a lot of crossover and as somebody who's been in both of these spaces i can say that you know the language often is quite similar um therefore we need to understand it and i think echoing what you said um, Jane about you know we want to I suppose identify what we should be aware of if we're 
employees or if we're going into an organization, but also as managers, we want to think about what are the risks that we're, we might be creating some of these situations. And I think, I think just listening to you talk about that, particularly the health and safety thing, which I think is really interesting and I hadn't thought about, but of course that makes total sense. Um, for me, there is about, there is a, this is going to sound slightly side, side angled, but go with me. So I've been reading a lot about consent recently um, in lots of different ways. And I think there's something really important about a manager's responsibility to their team to ensure there is consent to behave and be influenced, be bought into certain issues, approaches, et cetera. Mm. And that I think goes a long way to sharing why I, why I get nervous around this topic and why I want to talk about it, because I feel like if you, you can't consent, if you're not aware what's happening. And if someone hasn't said to you, you realize your organization is trying to get you to work more hours and you say, I know, and I get that because I am conscious that we're trying, we're going through a particularly tough time. We are really driven by this. And I think it's a very different, different situation. Um, and so I'm really interested in that intent and consent space. Um, and I know that doesn't solve all the problems around it, but certainly for me, there's a real interest, certainly in the lack of awareness and consent that goes on in some of the organizational practices um, that I yeah, see. I, I think there's that whole piece about informed, right? Like, like being aware of what's going on around you and informed of the impacts it can have and really, you know, going into these situations from a point of knowledge. I, I think if we think again a little bit about, you know, the legal structure of these organizations, so many of our organizations are designed for a purpose, right? Or, or they're designed in such a way that, that they should maximize their resources, right? I mean, that's fundamentally what a lot of organizations mm. are designed to do. But that's their role, maximize their resources. If people are a resource or an input to your process, which they are, you want to maximize their contribution. And, and how do you do that? Well, you do that by influencing people so that you get the most out of them while contributing the least to them and and surely that that, that you know that inbuilt um incentive within our organizations to to do both those things maximize output and minimize input leads to a, a drive towards influencing more powerfully with whatever tools you have and and i guess the checks and balances we have to control that are our sense of ethics our our leadership belief in you know purpose and integrity in business our roles as people to inform ourselves and challenge and, and trying to get to that sort of collective behavior um, within people who are working or owning organizations to, to regulate away from some of that. And, and I think that so many of the things that we do in the world come down to this desire to influence or exert influence over others. And, and that's so embedded in our organizations that sometimes we don't even think about it we just we sort of live within that system and that world of influence without the ability to step back and say actually pretty much everything that we're doing in these organizations is some form of influence one way or another and, and that's what happens when people come together yeah and that's completely normal um but if you're in that game then of course that there is a risk that it starts to um, go into uh, a level of influence that is known as undue which is really where um, cultic groups sit so once you're getting to undue influence and what does that mean that's you know that's a difficult um, question so that's something that it'd be nice to dig into a little bit what do we mean by undue influence and I think Jane's touched on that in terms of awareness and consent and so on but there's more to talk about that I think 
I think there is. And I think also to go back to James' point, I'm not sure where this is going to come up, but I know it will because we've already, we've already mentioned it twice. This, why do businesses exist, right? Now, I know there's one, one organization in particular that used to, I don't know if it still does, John Lewis in, in the UK, which is a partnership model. So it, it, I hesitate to use it because I'm not familiar with its history in the last four or five years. But prior, prior to that, it was a partnership model where, which is owned by the staff. And its entire reason for existence, it argues, is to provide meaningful work for its partners. Now, what that means is they have to stay profitable because otherwise they won't be able to provide meaningful work. But the the purpose of the organization is to provide meaningful work for the for the employees. And I think that is, from, from my perspective, really interesting because I think it completely changes the way you think about the work experience of the people that are working in the organization. Um, and I think one of the challenges is that when when profit is the bottom line, financial profit is the bottom line, I think you're asking a lot of boards and leaders to do anything that doesn't work in the short, medium-term, profitable space. And I I, I struggle. I, th- I just think it's such a powerful lever. How do you construct a, an argument and behavioral levers against something that is driving, literally is built within the fabric of the rules of the organization? Yeah, I, I think that's where, you know, you mentioned about checks and balances. Um, that's That's probably... Uh, where we will need to discuss that and think, well, are they are, are they sufficient? Um, you know, I, I guess the um, the very basis of of capitalism is is a bit out of bounds um, for for us. Although you know, there's no reason why we can't talk about it on this podcast. Um, but we can. Um, but yeah, that maybe there's um, there's some uh, there's some thing we can talk about there around exactly what should those checks and balances be and what is government's role what is um uh, what what are bodies you know various trade bodies and so on what is their role what's the role of unions maybe in this as well to protect people um so yeah we, we can maybe talk about some of those um, those areas too um i think one of the other things I, I just wanted to say as well is that we i think we've started um this conversation from the assumption that um organizations start as as something but then if they're not careful they can become cultic um actually some groups themselves are right from the get-go um cults but they are um framed as commercial organizations so in some of the literature that um that i've read about cults so one of the most well-known books is uh, margaret singer's book cults in our midst she devotes a whole chapter to uh cultic um uh, organizations that are actually commercial organizations so things like self-development things like management training stuff that you know is kind of well my bread and butter in a way it's kind of what i've spent my career doing um some of those are right from the start very clearly structured to be cults they use cultic manipulation to get people in um so you know there are some of those too that um it'd be good to be able to notice and be aware and i'm, of I'm assuming multi-level marketing models would quite often sit within those spaces uh, as well they come up a lot yeah yeah so there's some um some sort of uh i guess there's some structures around pyramid structures and uh and mlms that um that lend themselves to these approaches that's not to say that all multi-level marketing and pyramid schemes are cults some of them are not some of them are just illegal (laughs) (laughs) um 
and I guess some marketing groups are not either of those things, you know. So I don't know enough um, to be able to say that every single um, one of these structures is is uh, is wrong. But we can, you know, that might be an area where we can just dig into a bit and get clarity on. You know what, Stephen? We've been doing a lot of speaking here about sort of cultic organisations, and I've been sharing my thoughts, and so is Jane. But you know, I'm not really close to specific definitions of a cult, so I'm just I'm going on on yeah. this sort of like innate sense of it I have of what a cult is, and I know that you're closer to it. It'd be great to hear your thoughts on what it is that actually makes a cult. Yeah, so it's it's a obviously it's a really important question that we need to get nailed, I suppose, if we can, because it's it's difficult to nail it down and there are a number of different ways of defining cults but they they have quite a lot in common Uh, so I suppose the first thing that I would say is that I tend to use the term high control group more than I use the word cult although um, the reality is is people don't know what you're talking about when you talk about high control groups so you end up talking about cults Um, so there's high control group there's coercive uh, coercively controlling groups there's high control coercive groups but they they all kind of have that thing in common. So I think that straight away starts to define what we mean by cult. So there's coercive control, um, and it's um, it's high control. Also, high demand tends to be another phrase that's put in there. Um, there's a number of different researchers who have had a go at trying to define cults. So I, I can kind of talk about some of those um if you like. So I suppose the most well-known at the moment is the the researcher um, Stephen Hassan, who uses something called the BITE model. And so he defines cults as, as being basically uh, using behavior control, so that's the B of the BITE, information control, uh, thought control, and emotional control. So it's really about controlling the behaviors of people, uh, controlling the access to information from the outside so that the only source of information is through the group. Um, thought control, so you actually, you know, you're you're trained to only think in a certain way. Um, so your beliefs, so your thoughts, your ideas come through the group. And emotion control, you know, you're taught what you can feel. You're only allowed to feel certain things and not other things and so on. Um, and this is done systematically so it's a systematic um, application of those things in this group so that's one way of describing it another one which I quite like is um, uh, one by uh, Janja Lalic who is a researcher into cult she's been on our podcast a very interesting guest she talks about something called bounded choice which itself is actually a really nice phrase because people often think, well, why don't why don't you just leave? You know, why don't you just leave? Why, why, why do people stay in cults? And also, why do people stay in abusive relationships? It's the same sort of dynamic. And and she makes the point that it's like, well, I suppose we might say Hobson's choice. It's like you know, you you have a in theory you've got a choice, but actually your choices are bounded and constricted because of the way that you've ended up within this this framework. So you actually can't make. A real choice you've only got one option and that is to stay um so for her there's four elements again so if you're looking at what a cult is then you might look for what she described as a transcendent belief system so some way of thinking about the world that somehow got the secret 
you know, the secret to something that you didn't know before that you're going to know if you're part of this group. It's, it's a, it's higher knowledge. It's knowledge that has been discovered by somebody or something that other people don't know. And that you're going to know if you're part of this, this group, um, charismatic authority is the second one there. So often you see cults headed by some figure who's very charismatic and that itself is an interesting subject that we probably should dig into. What does charisma mean? It's something we studied on the um, on the uh, masters, wasn't it, uh, Jane? Um, so there's a there's a, a figure there, often not always, but um, who is charismatic and who somehow is able to influence and whip people up into an emotional state. Um, three is systems of control. So they they have very clear systems where they control all of this stuff. So again, if you went back to the bite model, control people's behavior, their thoughts, their emotions, and their systems that, that make that happen. Um, and the systems of influence, which is how you kind of get people to do those things. So how you influence people to, to do what you want them to do. So, uh, so that's the boundary choice. There's others. There's Robert J. Lifton's model, which has eight different elements to it, which again is, is, very interesting. Um, but that's probably, you know, a decent little potted um, history or, or overview of, of what we're talking about with cults. But I think the main thing to go away with is it's systematically controlling people in a way that is not necessarily in their interest, but is in the interest of the group. Um, and by the group, we normally mean the leader or the leadership, not, not the group as a whole. Yeah, very, very lovely definitions um, or, or models to use to think about this. And, and Byte is particularly memorable. It, it, it's, mm. it's very good. Um, I think that the, I, I've got some really kind of interesting questions on this. Is, would you say that the, the sort of cultic nature of an organization is a binary thing? Or, or do you think it's scalar? Can, can one drift towards it? There's question one. I'm going to hit you with a double barrel question here. And question two, <laughs> can you be a cult if you are doing something that is deemed to be hugely beneficial to society at large yeah um yeah so that that's um that they're both good questions the um i think everybody agrees that it's a continuum not not a point if you like so um yeah yeah i think it's dangerous when you you just simply say you know these are the things if you see any of these things then you're in a cult um, and in fact, Yanya Lalich in her book, um, uh, Escaping Utopia, which is a great book, actually, really good bit of research if you want to uh, to, to look into that. Um, she makes that point that, you know, it's it's if you see a lot of these things within your uh, within the group you're in, it doesn't necessarily mean you're in a cult. It just means you should look at it. You should you should ask some more questions. Think about what that means. Uh, so in her book, she actually goes into these four in a lot more detail. And there's a set of questions after each chapter to sort of get you to think, you know, am I, what sort of group is this? So that's, that's definitely worth noting. Um, Margaret Singer, again, one of the, um, the, the original researchers in this area talks about the continuum of influence and persuasion. Um, and actually what she does is like, is um, she splits it into, um, if you think about a continuum or a dimension on which cults operate, or in fact any organization operates, at one end you might 
say, you know, you've got education. So at the at the benign end, you've got what you might be seeing as education. And then next to that, a little bit further up, you've got advertising, because this is all like a, a way of influencing people. And then a bit further on from that, you've got propaganda. And then a bit further on from that, you've got indoctrination. And then right at the end, you've got what she describes as thought reform. And that's really where your cults really sit. But I, I think a lot of these groups sit between indoctrination and thought reform. So there's, you know, there's bits that relate to basically they're just they're just giving you all the good stuff and none of the none of the bad they're limiting the information that you get um and then the one step further than that is where they punish you if you actually ask any questions or think anything different so yeah i think it is is absolutely a it's absolutely a dimension which makes it very tricky i think for anybody to firstly identify whether something is a cult or whether you're in one um and it is one of the reasons why the use of the word can be can be a bit um well it's it's become a pejorative term so you know any group that you don't like you just call it a cult and that kind of says everything that you think needs to be said but then you get you know the counter is that well no i'm not in a cult you're in a cult and it's all a bit childish so it, that's one of the problems with the term and that's why you know it's good that we're we're trying to nail what that is actually like um, so that's that's the first thing. Yes, it is a it is a dimension. It's it's not a, a fixed point. Um, and I've forgotten you. So, oh yes, the second question was: um, Are Can it be for cults? a benign cause? Yeah, yeah. Can it yeah. be for a good cause? Because I mean, a lot of the things mm. that you talk about about behavior, you know, information, yeah. it, it leads into that control space, which is bad with thought control, emotional control, and things like that. But but my sense, and and I'm just going to like chuck it out there, mm. is that certain political parties probably pull together aspects of this type of behavior um, or, or that even things like certain, I guess, environmental groups might have some self-policing behaviors around this, you know, lots of specific strong advocacy groups could bring together some of these aspects, but be doing so for what is deemed to be a socially beneficial cause at the big level. And I just was wondering about that. I don't know if you've got thoughts on that or Jane, do you have thoughts on that? You're, well, you're... It's not that I have thoughts on it, it's that I struggle with anything that is either is a binary choice. So either something's a cult or it's not. And I think this lends itself a little bit to what Stephen was saying mm -hmm. earlier. How can we keep people informed to decide where, where, where are the boundaries of what we're okay with? Because fundamentally, there will always be some areas which will have strong arguments for why people shouldn't act in their own interest for the betterment of the group right now we're, we're currently recording this uh, at the you know a year and a half into a healthcare issue in the UK with COVID where absolutely they've had to identify ways in which they want to influence us mm. to behave in a way that is conducive to the mass right communities human communities have, have needed to do that for generations you only you know I always love the stories from uh, Aboriginal communities in native communities in Australia, because they they tell really interesting how storytelling is used to help individual members conform to the norms, right? And I, so for me, there's something really important, not in is it a cult, isn't it a cult, and does that matter, but to what extent can we recognize the practices that might inform or cause people to behave in such a way that they would identify as being part of a cultish group and how do they maintain their 
ability to critically think, to decide when to move away from those practices because it's no longer serving them and some number of members of their community. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's that's right, and um, I suppose I, I would say um, I I think by using the term cult, if we if we use that term, then essentially we we are saying it's gone so far up that uh, dimension that it's no longer ethical um, for that individual to be in that group, so because it is on a dimension, you'll see things like self-sacrifice and you'll see things like um, loyalty to to the group. Um, and you'll see a certain amount of propaganda um, and bending of the truth and all of that sort of stuff. You'll see some of that in organizations that are doing good things. Um, once it goes too far it's at that point then i think we we can call it a cult um but where that that is on that dimension is is a is it absolutely a matter of opinion and so it's always going to be a difficult one to um to definitively say you know but i think by definition we if we're saying something is it's like saying it, are harmful things always harmful um you know my answer is yeah because they're harmful so That's so brilliant. yeah so there's there's definitely cultic um or there's definitely things around influence and um uh, yeah uh, suspending one's belief even at times and um making sacrifices that perhaps others wouldn't understand that that you know people might do that and still be doing the, the things for the common good and for their own good but but once it tips beyond that, then it then it becomes a call, um, and at that point, it's it's no longer um, appropriate. That that's my view of it. But you know, that's just my personal uh, feeling about that. That's that's interesting. Do, do you think do you think most organisations have the leverage to do these things, whether they choose to or not? Is there something structural structural about our relationships with organisations where? by having our sort of contractual relationship with them they can control our behavior they can control our information they can influence our thoughts they can control our emotions to some extent do you think those those abilities are latent within our typical relationships with organizations i think um i mean this this is one of the areas we can we can sort of explore i think over the over the coming uh podcast episodes because i think that's that's a good that's a good question i would i would guess that it depends very much on on the organization so i mean jane in in terms of sports i'm guessing you've got people there who are very um dedicated to what they're doing so straight away you've got a um a, a a workforce for want of a better word or a group of people who have who are primed if you like to want to put in the extra work to want to do to do more and more and more um if i'm working in um you know stacking shelves or something then then there's different pressures on me and they they're going to more likely be fairly basic pressures about needing to earn a living to pay the bills whereas if i'm wanting to be a famous actor or um you know a great sports person then there's a lot more potential for abuse of that that power relationship um 
So I, I think um, I, I would, the answer to your question, is, I think it depends on the organization, but so I think some organizations have an incredible, there's an incredible risk that they do exploit people just because of the nature of, of that, that work. So for me, I always, I always think about where I see, let's call it poor practice um, in anything. I always, uh, the phrase uh, plan, uh, regulate for the worst and hope for the best and leave space yeah. for the best is always the thing that goes through my mind, right? You have to assume someone will do the wrong thing in order to ensure you get your the type of regulation. To what extent they might do that helps you decide how strong that regulation needs to be. And But you need to leave space for people to be their best, right? And to do the things that, that will do well. And the thing that always strikes me, and you asked me about sport or you mentioned sport, thing that always strikes me about the sector that I've got most experience in is the stickiness of moving in and out of it. So recruiting for certain positions in certain parts of sport, it's very difficult to be recognized as having comparable skills and be able to move in it. Now, that's not the case for everyone. So if you're in HR, it's easier, although it will still be harder than in most most industries because people will argue well you don't really understand sports people and you don't understand coaches so how can you possibly manage them um but i feel like organizations so we talk about talent war quite a lot in hr and in op and this idea of you know getting staff and stuff like that and i feel like it is in the organization's interest to make it difficult and unpalatable for people to move away from that organization and i think that without that being checked on or knowing the signs of that I think that it can become very easy to think you haven't got options and I you know when I work with people in our sector I hear I hear quite a lot uh my, I, w- I would struggle to to move now into corporate or I would struggle to do this and when you dig into why that is it's because the sector has convinced itself it's different right mm-hmm. and and also put up other barriers that make it difficult to move so um so yeah I think that that piece I think is really interesting and I would definitely um I think that's relevant for people listening around being able to sort of think about their own because I don't think sports the only one that does it and I think big cultish organizations do it as well um James yeah I was just gonna say even before you started speaking there you know your example Stephen about the maybe you know experience of somebody stacking shelves or in, in some of those more um I guess, labor-oriented type of roles. One of the things that's in my mind that, that goes back to the systemic piece is the increasing prevalence, you know, the rise of non-compete clause, clauses in what are fairly retail, high-volume jobs. So certainly across the US in the last 20 years, you get non-compete clauses if you're work, working in your local fast food restaurant, right? And, and so, so that, if we're talking about, you know, levers of control over people, if you can say that you're not allowed to work in another restaurant in this town for two years, even when it's such a uh, otherwise fluid market with transferable skills, that seems to me like a real indicator of an an overreach of control that I, that I think wouldn't be in the interest of the individuals involved. So, so I think with what you're speaking about, Jane, I think there's the um the, the sort of creation of a belief system around non-transferability or inaccessibility of all of that but then i think we've also got the actual legal and, and structural mechanisms that, that bring into it's a force a, a barrier as well that that's another form of control 
Yeah, I think the the other thing to think about is is the more the more desirable um, a, a role is, or the more desirable an organisation is, that the more uh, power they they potentially have over their employees. And and again, it, it feels like a, if I was to compare that to a religious organisation, you know, why do I want to stay part of this religious group? Well, because they've they've promised me, you know, that I'm going to live forever. Um, and I'm going to see all my dead loved ones again, and I'm going to, you know, uh, uh, and we're, we're the God's chosen people. So that's that's your transcendent belief system. Well, okay, let's apply that to uh, an organisation that that sells computers. Um, so no, actually, we don't sell computers, Stephen. No, what we do is we sell people the dream of being able to connect to people all over the world, and there's nobody that does it like us. You know, we. And there's a there's a story as well behind that, you know, how it was started in a somebody's shed, and um, and they uh, they battled through, you know, difficulties and, uh, and challenges, and um, and now, you know, we we're more than just a computer company. You know, we we uh, give people a window into their lives. This is the future. You're buying into the future. Being part of this organisation means you are part of this trendy cool organization that everybody wants to be a part of um you know sure if you compare the salary you know okay the salary isn't as high as going working for you know computers are us over there but you're not working for that lot you're working for the the top notch you know godlike figure that is the, the person behind this wonderful organization that has transformed the world. And, you, you know, tomorrow it's going to be fantastic. We're going to have computers on Mars. We're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to be the, um, the, the information um, source for all of humanity over the next century. So I'm, I'm hamming it up a bit here, but you no, no, but really... you make a really good point, and you—it's really interesting. You've just—it's what you've just said, and what you said, we, right? And you're right. That's how they talk. We, you are part of us, and yet, the employment contract and the means and influence you have over that world is not we. No. I work for you under a specific contract. I am not. You're not. You're, this is not a community operation. You're not inviting me to be uh, 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 an employee owner. Right. And this is why I think also when organizations offer share capital, but it's not actually ownership. They can't, you know, if it's a, if it's a public limited company, it's, there's no influence. It's just, you're taking, we'd like you to gamble on the uh, bonus that you're getting on whether we're (laughs) successful or not. Right. That's really, really what it's saying. And so for me, there's something really interesting and that's the danger of the language. I think when they Mm. say we, but what they mean, what they mean is I and these people who started it would like you to come and join us. We've owned the risk at the beginning, so therefore you get no no say, and you get to just rub shoulders. And it's uh, it, it's like being invited to uh, join a friendship group, right? But you're told what to dress, you're told how to conform, <laughs> yeah. and you get to hang out with the cool kids, but you don't get any of the benefits of actually being part of that group. Yeah, well, I'm feeling a bit like that now because obviously you're both wearing your your hats. Um, uh, and I'm not, so I'm, I'm feeling... Next time, upset. next time you'll know, next time you'll turn out with a hat, so, we'll not have hats, and then you'll feel like a fool. Let's be very clear to the listeners. James and I have got hats on because we're in a particularly cold part of the world, and there is nothing about the way we look that would suggest that we are the cool two out of this group. <laughs> that is absolutely true. 
Yeah, but I think that's um, yeah. So we're probably getting into a bit of the crux here of of um, why this is such an interesting area. Because I mean, the the, the organisations that um, you know that people want to work for. I mean, again, replace that with um, with football team. You know, um, uh, do you want to play for uh, you know Manchester Albion? Made up football name, um, but you know. Uh, this this is a team that's won the European Cup. This is a team that's done this. This is a team that's done that. Um, I've no idea what any of these football um, clubs are like in terms of their employment practices for their you know everyday staff, the cleaners and the the, the chefs and the, uh, the the people that look after the stadium and and all of that. But if you if you are being offered a role in that club, then I'm not saying they do, but there is a there is a temptation i would have thought there is a a lot a, a tendency that that you could think well yeah i know it's not being paid quite as much but it looks great on my cv and actually i'm part of this thing that is so important and so big um so you, you kind of you're then uh, this is just a, a form of control but of course there's other there's other elements um of cults that we want to we want to think about but but mm-hmm. yeah so i think i think the the tendency there or the temptation is there the the risk is there um, the more uh, charismatic an organisation is, the, the better known it is, the the the, the sexier it is, the, the more risk there is that 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 inequality of power is is there. Well, so, and I think I was just going to say one of the indicators you can look for is how big is their volunteer program, and what kind of volunteer roles are people doing. So there's lots of regulation about what a job is and it can and can't be a voluntary role but in my experience we went through it's got better now since those regulations came in place but we had organizations that were effectively replacing paid jobs with unpaid because Mm -hmm. it looked that good on your cv to have worked there right and that is basically saying hey we're so good we don't need to pay you because you're getting something else out of it now to an extent that's okay to some level but if it's you know you're doing your spare time etc but when you start when you start to run a business on that that is and you're and you're extracting value for the owners or the shareholders or the whoever it is that starts to feel very very open to exploitation let's go with that and that, that is what cults do so that is a great example of what cults do so if you think about um many well-known cults high control groups they you know they do everything through voluntary contributions and um you know that the buildings are built by uh, volunteers they'll they'll perhaps use uh, volunteer labor who are builders and experts in this area so they'll 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 give their labor for free um they'll you know that the running of their buildings the um the the, or the printing work if they've got printing um uh, facilities their it stuff a lot of that if not most of that will be done by voluntary Labor, and this again is one of those areas that I've talked about on my podcast, which is that if you're a, an organisation, normally you um, uh, you you come under the laws that restrict that sort of thing. But but cults have a have a, a clever way of getting around that, and then there's likely to be some a bit of uh, ground in between. I mean, one of the areas that perhaps we should talk about on this um, uh, on further discussions is is the charity sector. Um, because that's an area where I think there's, there is uh, potential for abuse and a lot of religious groups, religious cults are actually charities and that's how they get away with a lot of the, um, 
that the unethical practices that they do, basically running the whole organization, including getting money by voluntary labor. Yeah, I think that would be a, a good route to take the conversation on. Um, I just wanted to, to reflect on one thing, then ask one question um, to, to maybe lead us towards looking forward a little bit. Um, my observation is that I've spoken to quite a few people who've had jobs in the city or other places like that, where they've gone into these really prestigious organizations, right? These aren't the people that were making the ABC computer, but these are the people who were, you know, doing the big deals, keeping the world going in the news. So they had that not always positive limelight on them, but certainly there was a a sense of proximity to power and influence and authority and all those things. Um, and I know a bunch of people who've worked in those spaces. And and quite often, I think you get people who get to, you know, a few years later in life, um, sort of, you know, maybe in their 40s, and, and suddenly realize that actually, this isn't what I thought it was. And and so it feels like there's a sort of scales removal from the eyes time that people go through where they suddenly think, actually, you know, this thing never lived up to what I thought it was going to be in terms of its reputation or or suddenly the, the specialness that I should feel from being part of this isn't really there. The other compensation that, that I get doesn't, you know, doesn't compensate for what I'm giving into this organization. And and I just feel like there's probably a bit of a, a trend on that as, as people, I guess, through maturity and experience um, and personal security and all those things start to see the relationships that they have with their organizations as potentially um, exploitative and look to to make a change as a result of that. And I guess to sort of move us forward a little bit, I, I was just wondering, you know, what can people do to have a better understanding of the, I guess, the fairness of a the relationship they have with their organization? Is it exploitative? Is it not? How can, you know, what can you you think about and find as, as I guess, signs to, to be aware of and things you can do for yourself to help you get a better grip on on what's there and yeah i guess that's just a question to uh, either of you yeah i think that's perhaps one of the the things that we we should explore um throughout this um this series but um yeah i think i think um obviously listening to this podcast is is your first um port of call uh, that's the first thing you have to do but um yeah um i think uh, there seems to be there's a lot of interest in in cults actually if you um if you look at netflix um and put cults into your search uh and or you look at uh books on cults there's lots and lots of interest and podcasts of course um there's lots of interest in this subject but i think people tend to think oh uh cults are for um, slightly sad people who um, are a bit easy to fool. You know, maybe they're searching for something. Maybe they've um, they're a bit um, they're they're a bit foolish and and uh, yeah, they're, they're, it wouldn't happen to me. You know, I'm, I'm not going to get involved in in a cult. Um, so I think that's another another thing to think about is actually being aware of of actually what we're talking about is is important because most. In fact, I've never met anybody in a cult. Who thinks they're in a cult? Nobody joins a cult, as far as they're aware, and the people in the cult don't don't see themselves as being that. So I, we don't want to kind of scare people into thinking, you know, if you're all in a cult. Um, that's not what we're saying. And we also want to be able to differentiate between just normal regrets that, you know, quite frankly, everyone has in life when you get to 54 um, about the, the wasted years that you've given to some organization. Um, you know, we all have that. But um, 
I think we we do need to be able to recognise when when things have gone to a, to a degree that they shouldn't. Um, and the other thing that I just wanted to say briefly um, is that I think is also a risk for people. I don't know. I don't want to speak for you guys, but so I'm going to say like me. Um, I'm I'm a trainer. I'm a coach. Um, I, I've studied psychology. I've worked in behavioral change. I'm in a I'm in a space that is is you're paid to try and get people to change their behavior in certain ways. Um, so it's very easy for professional trainers, coaches, influencers, I think, to to get sort of sucked into doing things that are actually, you know, perhaps not that ethical. So that's that's another thing I think we should think about. Yeah, I think I think it is, and I think that is one of the reasons I'm always keen to talk to people who feel they've stayed too long in roles or who have feel like they've had to in some ways adapt their behavior in order to fit afterwards because I think actually that's where that's inform those conversations have informed quite a lot of my thinking about this like how is it because of something that's intrinsic so for example, is that person been other stuff going on in their lives and actually it's just been easier to not go through a difficult transition and da, 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 da. or is it because actually they felt in some ways beholden to the organization or because they felt like they were the, they were irreplaceable? And I think, I think there's something really interesting in that whole narrative between organizations as well. Um, that can be very helpful. It gives a lot of people lots of confidence, but can also be quite dangerous. And so it's always... Like you say, it, it, it's not necessarily as straightforward as, you know, this is good and this is bad, and but it's about looking out and helping people notice those signs that make you go, oh, hang on. Yeah. I'm not careful. Yeah. I could accidentally create something here or I could do something here that could leave itself vulnerable to affecting people in a way that I perhaps didn't intend. Yeah, absolutely. So so we said this um, this first discussion that we wanted to do on this podcast was kind of um, almost like behind the scenes, you know, the, the original um, discussion, if you like. And, and I think we've we've kind of covered quite a lot of that. What, what we also wanted to do, though, is to think about a way forward and what we wanted to do in subsequent discussions. So um, have we got any kind of subjects that we've that have fallen out of this discussion here that we think, yeah, actually that's that's a that's a little mini podcast and these podcasts don't have to be an hour they can be shorter they can be whatever we think is appropriate but um are there any areas that we think yeah actually i want to dig into that a bit more so something i'd love to sort of put on the table that we might want to discuss is the role of purpose and the creation of purpose in organizations i think that that sort of creation of a value through purpose is interesting and the direction it goes with that I think is something that's that's quite interesting so I'd like to pop that one out there um Jane is there anything on your mind that you want to bring oh, nicked my one um no you haven't nicked it I knew you were going to say that um I think for me I am really interested in uh the level in which people who work for, so employees have space and confidence to speak up and to truly challenge, not just from a business case point of view, but from a moral and ethical case. I think there's something really interesting in organizationally, how and why would you do that? Would you give your employees space to do that? 
and whether that's also whether that's a way of mitigating against some of this um because i think firstly some employees there's cultures where they they can't speak up and they can't criticize and we we recognize those and we talk a lot you know in the sector about psychological safety and things like that right and employee voice but when it's not the business case and when it's not in the interest of the organization where is their space and who is listened to about whether organizations can and should adopt a moral or an ethical point of view um and and where is the space for that conversation in the organization and, and to what extent employees are empowered to have that conversation i think is really interesting because i think groups can somewhat regulate themselves if they have the power and space to do so cool um i think one of the things that i'd, I'd like to investigate are um some case studies of uh, organizations that we think may have slipped into cultic practices um and i mean there's some quite well-known um examples that, that you know there's films and, and stuff about some of these groups um so maybe we we pick some of those and, and do some uh, a bit of a uh, analysis of, of actually what what was it that happened there and um do they really fit that cult narrative or, or is it something different that was going on there? Um, I think that'd be really useful because again, this, the word is banded around a lot um, and there's, there's lots of accusations, but exactly what, you know, what was happening and um, how did it get to that? Uh, what, what, what actually did happen and does it, does it fit these models of, of cults? Um, I think that would be really useful um, because then we can, sort of be on the lookout for those sorts of groups, both as employees, but also, you know, from a, I suppose if you're thinking from a societal perspective as well. So I'd like to look at some case studies um, uh, on that. And, and I'd also like to um, dig into a little bit the psychological processes that that are being invoked by these groups. So how are they doing it? You know, how, how are they how are they actually getting people because again the 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 assumption is i think in most of society that people in courts are in that group because they are particularly easy to fool um and it wouldn't happen to me so i think it's really important to to be uh, very very aware it's it's likely that we are moving into a an era so maybe this is another thing to discuss. I'm, I'm making a statement. Maybe I'm not correct, but I think we are moving into an era of more and more um, people being free agents, which in in its in itself could mean that they have more freedom. But with that, I think comes also some risks that they 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 get attracted to more unusual less um, structured and less controlled, less legislated structures where it's not quite so clear. Am I an employee or am I not an employee? Um, do I have this protection or don't I have this protection? So I think that probably sits in there as well because that's another, whenever you got, whenever you get these gaps, this is where cults and others can exploit that. So that's probably an area too. So that's really interesting. And yes, please. Because I think um, there's been a really, I don't know if those of you listeners who follow sport will know, there was a case a couple of years ago where a, pre, a, a, a Olympian uh, challenged whether they were an employee and therefore fell under work regulation mm. of 
one of the governing bodies of sport in the UK. And they, they, it was, I think it was decided they weren't, well, I know it was decided they weren't, but it brought up an immense, immense amount of thought and provocation about how that person and people like that are influenced to behave in certain ways based on their non-employment relationship. And I think, I think there's some really interesting gaps that are highlighted by that, but exist everywhere, right? So I think mm. there's lots and lots of other places where freelancers and single, single staffers, the power dynamic is so low mm. that there's definitely, um, there's definitely organizations that are good at making them feel like if they work for them, they can do it, they can get less, more out of it than the financial reward. Absolutely. I've been contacted in the last month by two organizations that were kind of offering me some very attractive um, thing um, to be, uh, you know, a part of, but I had to pay some money up front in order to, um, to be on their, you know, on their list of, of approved uh, people. So, you know, it's, it's, I think these things are uh, likely to happen more and more as, as, um, yeah, it feels like, oh, I'm, I work for myself. I can, um, I can make all my own decisions. But as you quite rightly say, that the power differential is is such that it's um, it, it's not quite like that. So yeah, we've we've got a few things to uh, to, to to discuss, I think. And um, yeah, I, I'm certainly up for for doing more of these. Um, I think we've we've set the scene quite well, um, and uh, yeah, we've got plenty to talk about. Brilliant! I look forward to getting stuck into the next ones whenever we do that and just a little reassurance to our world of work listeners we're not saying that just because you you're really keen to help your employees find purpose in work you suddenly need to worry that you're automatically uh <laughs> behaving in a way that would suggest recultic business we were just introducing the topic to get you thinking mm. a little bit about uh what kind of things we should look out for cool okay well great i've really enjoyed that conversation thank you very much Thank you for listening to episode one of our special series on cultic behaviors in organizations. We hope you enjoyed it very much and hopefully see you for the remainder of the series. We've got another three episodes on this topic coming up.